So Nick, I just got my second dose of the COVID vaccine, so I'm super excited. Way to go. Yeah, I'm not feeling that great, but um, I still am really glad that I got this vaccine and I was able to read much more about it on the OBG Project's website where they have a ton of great information on COVID-19, both in and out of pregnancy. Yeah, the OBG Project, again, has an excellent online library. When you go straight to their website, obgproject.com, there's things ranging from COVID information, primary care information, the second trimester ultrasound atlas, grand rounds reports. There's just a lot of really, really useful stuff. You can also sign up for OBG First, which is their subscription service, um, where you can have access to all of the above, as well as create your own bookshelf so that you can go back to all the articles that you like to read about. So if you want to get a free year of OBG first. If you're a chief resident, head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and there'll be a link there for you to get your free year of OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Creogs over coffee. Today we're coming back at you with a short and sweet espresso episode, this time on shoulder dystocia. And Faye, I can't believe we've never talked about this before. I know, right? I like was sure that we had, but I guess we can start off with some learning objectives. So our first learning objective is to understand the definition and etiology of shoulder dystocia. We'll learn the risk factors of shoulder dystocia as well as the harm that dystocia can cause. Um, And then finally, we'll of course talk about management of shoulder dystocia with both the more common and less common maneuvers. Um, And in terms of reading, we would encourage you to read Practice Bulletin 178, which is titled Shoulder Dystocia. All right, Nick, so let's get into it. What exactly is a shoulder dystocia? I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like, right? Again, more commonly or more formal definition, I guess, it's when after delivery of the fetal head, the anterior shoulder of the fetus gets caught under the maternal pubic symphysis. Less commonly, though possible, is that the posterior shoulder gets impacted by the maternal sacral promontory. The reported incidence of shoulder dystocia is overall pretty low, but somewhere between 0.2 to 3% of vaginal deliveries. I think kind of when we're learning about shoulder dystocia and trying to teach, like, say, your brand new intern, your brand new midwifery student about it, um, you recognize it with after delivery of the head, there's not a really easy delivery of the shoulders with just gentle traction, right? And this is where we talk about that turtle sign where there's the retraction of the fetal heads from the maternal perineum, kind of like the turtle shrinking back into its shell. Right, right. Risk factors for shoulder dystocia can include macrosomia and anything else that can cause macrosomia, basically. So think maternal diabetes, um, type 1, type 2, or particularly poorly controlled gestational diabetes. Like anything else in obstetrics, a history of a prior Shoulder dystocia is a risk factor here with a recurrence rate quoted about 10%. Um, And kind of the unfortunate thing is that intrapartum or otherwise, there really hasn't been anything reliably found to predict shoulder dystocia, including things that have been tested like history, the presence of diabetes, or even the estimated fetal weight or the abdominal circumference to biparietal diameter ratio on ultrasound kind of unfortunate so you always have to be prepared is the bottom line right so Faye I guess 
kind of moving from there, you know, obviously you think shoulders stuck are bad, but why is it bad? Yeah, we'll break this down to first the risk to mom and then the risk to the baby. So for mom, shoulder dystocia can increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage. So there's an 11% chance of having a postpartum hemorrhage with a shoulder dystocia, which is relatively high. It can also increase the risk of oasis or obstetric anal sphincter injury, and especially the risk of fourth degree laceration, which can go as high as 3.8% with shoulder dystocias. Um, We also know that when we have a particularly catastrophic shoulder dystocia, performance of certain heroic maneuvers, things like the Zavanelli or symphysiotomy, um, have significant risk for mom and can cause significant damage, things like ureteral injury, urine rupture, cervical laceration bladder injuries. We'll, of course, talk about these heroic measures a little bit later on, but thankfully they're pretty rare and I've actually never seen any of them in real life. If you guys are interested, there is an ER episode that came out in 1995 titled Love's Labor Lost, where they talk about eclampsia, forceps, shoulder dystocia with the Zavanelli's maneuver all in one episode. So if you're interested, definitely an episode to see. That sounds like something terrible, but would be on an episode of ER. Right. And of course, it all happens in the ER. Where exactly is the labor floor? No one knows. (laughs) But to bring this back to seriousness, the next thing we want to talk about, of course, is the risk to the baby, which I think seems pretty obvious. Um, Most shoulder dystocias, though, resolve without any injury to the baby. There is a higher overall neonatal injury rate, about 5.2% from a recent multicenter study in 2018. We know, of course, that there can be an increased risk of brachial plexus injury from hyperextension of the neck one way or the other, and that can lead to things like Herb's palsy or Klumpke palsy. Um, And of course, there's also an increased risk of clavicular or humeral fracture. And more rare are things like hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or HIE, And interestingly, the length of shoulder dystocia is not itself an accurate predictor of neonatal asphyxia or death. So now that we've talked about, you know, the risks to mom and to baby, let's talk about how we can manage a shoulder dystocia, Nick. So, you know, think about your last shoulder dystocia. What were some things that you did? Yeah. So before we even get to management, we can come back one more time to prevention of shoulder dystocia. Um, You know, again, we don't have anything accurately there to predict shoulder dystocia, so we're not going to be able to figure out a lot of things that can prevent it. But just to kind of go through it for completeness sake, there haven't been big trials looking at some of these things, but according to some studies, looking at cost analyses, there's some suggestion offering primary cesarean section for fetuses greater than 5,000 grams in non-diabetic mothers and greater than 4,500 grams in diabetic mothers may be worth it, quote unquote. And again, those are the definitions for macrosomia, which is associated with shoulder dystocia. Um, So it might be reasonable to consider primary cesarean section if you have a reasonable guess that a baby's going to be that large. Um, certainly the other place where you can consider primary section to avoid shoulder dystocia would be for patients with a history of prior shoulder dystocia. Again, that recurrence risk of 10%, if you kind of think back to like our toe lacking episode where we talked about uterine rupture rates, like less than 1% for that low transverse and 10% for that classical section, that's what that sort of degree of risk that's there, that 10%, that's, you know, that's certainly, um, 
worthwhile to think about with avoiding subsequent shoulder dystocia. There have also been a fair number of studies that look at induction of labor to see if you can decrease the incidence or risk of shoulder dystocia by inducing. Um, but evidence is kind of unclear whether there's benefit to earlier induction of labor versus expectant management alone for the purposes of shoulder dystocia prevention. Okay, but what we really want to get to, and the whole point of this episode was to talk about the management of shoulder dystocia, right? Right, exactly. Um, you and I, Faye, were fortunate enough to train in the same place, and so I think we should just go through how we trained. Before we even get to the maneuvers is I think really important is to make sure that you are in control of the room. First of all, you've got to recognize the shoulder, right? You can see that the shoulder is not delivering easily despite gentle downward traction of the head. You may see that turtling sign. Um, and once you recognize that, it's really important that you communicate what you've recognized to the entire room. So for example, I just come out and say, we have a shoulder dystocia. And this will usually kick off a series of events um, you know, in your hospital, uh, most of the time because there is a protocol in place for what to do when there is a shoulder dystocia. The nurse is going to probably call for help. Um, and at our, my current hospital, there's like this emergency lever that we basically pull and it sounds an alarm that lets the whole labor floor hear and help will come. So again, that's kind of the first thing, right? Is to recognize the shoulder dystocia, communicate that to the room, call for help. You then want to tell the mom, because she's probably freaking out with a giant alarm going off, and tell her to stop pushing. And you can tell the mom, you know, um, baby shoulder is stuck behind the pubic bone. I'm going to ask you to stop pushing while we help the baby to get out. Once you have called the shoulder dystocia, once you've communicated all of these things, there's usually institutional implementation of someone to be a recorder as well. So someone who's going to call the time of when the shoulder dystocia started, document all the maneuvers tried, Etc. And then, of course, um, once you've kind of recognized this, communicated this, you're going to position your patient. So have your nurses, your other providers that are coming in to help you move the mom down the bed so that mom's perineum is right at the edge of the bed. And then the first thing to try is to place mom into what's called McRoberts maneuver, where basically the hips are flexed all the way back, um, opening up the pelvis to allow for hopefully more room to get that shoulder out. What are the next steps, Nick? What do you normally try after this? Yeah, so now we're going to talk through maneuvers, um, and just to preface it, there's not really a randomized trial to say one of these maneuvers is better than the other, but we'll kind of again go through what my usual thought process is for maneuvers. Um, and again, sort of we'll talk through these first couple, so you mentioned McRoberts already, Faye, and then mm -hmm. suprapubic pressure and a posterior arm. And kind of with these, folks should really pay attention to if you haven't heard of these before, because the combination of McRoberts and superpubic pressure or delivery of the posterior arm is going to resolve shoulder dystocia 95% of the time. Um, and so that should be what you look for as your primary maneuvers. So superpubic pressure is one that's helpful, but I think in the chaos of a shoulder dystocia can get kind of confusing. Yeah, definitely. The idea is to have kind of either another provider, whether it's your bedside nurse, an assisting person, um, or if you're in a resource limited setting, you can even be by yourself and using kind of like your elbow to place pressure suprapubically to push the impacted shoulder underneath the pubic symphysis. It's kind of coming behind that anterior arm and trying to force it like 
forward towards the baby's mid chest to again reduce that shoulder to shoulder diameter. It needs to be done in that direction. Obviously, if you push on the front side of the anterior shoulder and it goes backwards, now you're just widening the chest out. And so that's not gonna help you get the baby delivered. You need to take a moment to figure out which shoulder is impacted and which direction it should go. And if you have an assistant helping you out, indicate with your hands or your finger, I want suprapubic pressure in this direction, pointing the vector that you want. Because if you say, I want suprapubic pressure to the right, Again, when there's 5,000 people running into the room, there's a baby stuck, people are losing their minds. Right is which right? I don't know. Um, and so again, being very, very directive is what makes suprapubic pressure work. The posterior arm is the second maneuver that we'll talk through. Um, that some recent studies have shown that really this is the maneuver that leads to a high success rate. The idea here is to place your hand into the vagina, find the posterior arm, and deliver that arm first. Sometimes this can be more difficult, um, as it, you really gotta be able to find the arm, flex it at the elbow, and then pull the arm kind of up across the chest and around the head. If there's not enough room, this may be a point where you'd consider an episiotomy to facilitate more room. Um, and kind of, if the posterior arm's stuck behind the baby, sometimes that movement can be a little more challenging. There's also a described technique of a posterior shoulder sling where you thread a catheter under the posterior armpit, like a little red rubber catheter, and deliver the posterior shoulder that way. All of those are like good techniques, um, and I think even with my personal experience, this will resolve the majority of shoulder dystocias. Kind of some other maneuvers that we should talk through that you may kind of find as sort of your primary thoughts if say you get to the posterior arm and that's not working is your Rubens and your wood screw maneuvers. The Rubens maneuver involves placing your hand into the vagina and rotating the posterior shoulder anterior towards the fetal head. So it's kind of like the opposite of the suprapubic pressure. You're now working on that posterior arm and trying to compress it into the chest. The wood screw involves placing the hand on the anterior surface of the posterior fetal clavicle and turning that posterior shoulder until the anterior shoulder emerges. So kind of, again, you're sort of pushing that posterior shoulder back and seeing if that anterior shoulder just by changing the angle kind of pops out. Um, I will say anecdotally that these two maneuvers, I don't know for you, Faye, don't seem to work as well for me. I find sometimes they're helpful, but um, most of the time it's like I try one of these and then I go back to the posterior arm and get it then. Right. And I have small hands, so usually I have no problem putting my hand into the vagina and getting that posterior arm. And so mm -hmm. I just try that as my third thing every single time. Yeah. Um, the last one that's kind of a, the more common maneuvers, but really is one that I think is challenging in the day and age and the places that we work where, you know, 75 plus percent of women have epidurals is a Gaskin maneuver. Um, and the Gaskin maneuver is you have the patient get on all fours and then place pressure on the posterior shoulder downward or provide upward traction on the anterior shoulder. Again, you kind of are trying to wiggle that baby out and some of the same maneuvers as say doing like a Rubens or doing a posterior arm type of delivery. Um, again, this is a maneuver that actually I've never used um, because of the epidural rates that we have. Um, and so I don't know, Faye, if you've tried it before or been able to move someone around. No, I have actually never tried this as well. I think, again, because I feel like most of the time I will just do the posterior arm and that usually will work. 
The other thing kind of in terms of thinking about these maneuvers is keeping your eye on the clock and trying things again, right? So if you have a recorder in the room, sometimes even them calling out like every 15 or every 30 seconds, like where we are on the timer can be helpful for you to keep track of, I need to move on to something different. I need to try something else. A study of 231 cases showed notice association between different maneuvers and neonatal injury. And so if you are stuck where like you're two minutes in and you've gone to the post to your arm and you've gone to your Rubens and wood screw, trying again sometimes can be the ticket that you just like you maneuvered something a little differently and that worked. Sometimes though, and fortunately this has not happened to me and knock on wood it doesn't happen ever, but I've certainly heard about it or needing these more aggressive maneuvers. Do you want to take us through those, Faye? Yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, I have also never done these maneuvers myself. I've only heard about them or read about them. So the first one I think that, you know, is kind of scary for all obstetricians, but we have heard of is the Zavanelli's maneuver. And this is when everything else has been tried, um, everything else has failed. You really um, have a catastrophic shoulder dystocia that you really think you cannot deliver through the vagina. And the only other option is abdominal rescue. This is when you place pressure on the fetal head and actually push it to go back up through the vaginal canal um, and rush the patient to cesarean section to be able to deliver the baby abdominal. Again, um, this is really only done when you feel like there's absolutely no way of delivering the baby through the vagina. The second thing, again, that I also have never seen and I also shudder whenever someone mentions it is a symphysiotomy. And this is actually where you're cutting the woman's pubic symphysis and breaking open that joint um, to allow for the shoulder to pass through. And again, this maneuver really should only be done if you really think that there's nothing else that is going to be able to get this baby out. Um, and finally, the uh, this another one is breaking the fetal clavicle. Um, and the thought is that to do this, um, you can decrease that anterior-posterior diameter of the fetal chest um, and therefore be able to maneuver that anterior shoulder um, underneath the pubic symphysis. But this can be quite difficult to perform. And I will say that the one thing that I have learned from you know senior residents when I was a junior resident or just reading is to always think about the manner in which you break the fetal clavicle and you would always have to break it um, away from the fetal chest, meaning putting two fingers into the clavicle and pulling away from the body to avoid damaging um, the underlying structures, particularly, you know, you don't want to puncture a lung with a broken fetal clavicle. Yeah, I will say I've done this twice now. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. With bad shoulder dystocias. So I guess I'll take back the fact that I have tried some, a more aggressive maneuver in the clavicle. Um, You're right. I, I mean, I haven't done it intentionally, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, I... The way that I was able to accomplish it was like using my thumb on the midpoint of the clavicle and pulling out that way. Um, but it is difficult to do, but kind of when you're three minutes into a shoulder dystocia, your adrenaline is really going at that point. Um, I will say kind of the last thing that is really helpful for learning about shoulder dystocias and knowing what to do is SIM. If you don't have this already, please ask about simming a shoulder dystocia at your institution with everyone who could possibly be involved there. Not only does this make providers more comfortable when a shoulder dystocia actually arises, but studies have actually shown that team training protocols in SIM have been associated with a reduction in transient brachial plexus injury, um, and it also increases the use of evidence-based management of shoulder dystocia. So certainly simming and 
basically going through every single motion that you would with a shoulder dystocia is very helpful um, before actually encountering a shoulder dystocia yourself. Well, I hope that this shoulder dystocia review is helpful for you guys out there trying to manage these or deal with these. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoffee one on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to give us some support, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. You can also find show notes for this show and every other episode on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a correction for this episode or any of our previous episodes or have an idea for the future, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.